way over in Russia, in a region called Chechnya, there's a remarkable woman named Koku Estambalova. And the remarkable thing about this woman has nothing to do with what she's accomplished in life or where she's been. What's made her famous is just how long she's lived. Koku Estambalova is estimated to be 129 years old. Her Russian passport lists her birth year as 1889. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine turning 100 and still having three more decades to live? Think about what this woman has lived through. If her passport is correct, Estambulova was already 27 at the time of the Russian Revolution when Tsar Nicholas II was overthrown. She was 55 when World War II ended. And she was 102 when the Soviet Union collapsed. Her story is remarkable because so far, this woman has evaded death. She's lived far beyond the normal life expectancy. And for most folks, that's one of the primary goals, isn't it? The goal is survival. People in general want to avoid death. We don't even like to talk about it, much less experience it. People in general are also afraid of death. And that makes a lot of sense because death is the great unknown. Nobody comes back and tells you, hey, it's all okay, nothing to worry about. We're also shaken by the inevitability and the finality of death. This great enemy separates us from our loved ones. It leaves us grieving and often devastated. So for all these reasons, people in general struggle to have hope in the face of death. But this morning, we don't want to settle for that. We don't, we don't want to settle for hopelessness in the face of death. We want to look to God, look to His Word, and find out where real hope comes from. And let me just tell you, uh, we won't find the answer by trying to figure out how to extend this life as long as possible. Look at Koku Estambulova. Uh, do you know what she said? Uh, just a few weeks ago, leading up to her 129th birthday, she told reporters that she does not think of her long life as a gift. To her, it's a punishment because she's outlived all of her peers. She's outlived her own children. And these days, she says, I am not living. I'm just dragging through. So based on her testimony, is there anyone here who wants to live to be 130 or beyond? That's not really what we want, is it? But we don't necessarily want to die either, right? So what do we want? Well, in a way, it doesn't matter because the reality is there is a lot of death in your future. Either you will die younger than you would like, or you'll live long enough to see your family and your friends pass away. And some of you might be thinking, wow, Doug, I, I was having a pretty good day until I got to church. <laughs> and I do apologize for that, but I promise today's message is not going to leave us all bummed. In fact, I've been so excited about what we're going to cover this morning, I could hardly wait to get to Sunday. 
I'm excited because we're reading one of the most hopeful passages in all of Scripture. And we've been studying Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. And today, Paul turns his attention to this issue of what happens after we die, after this life is over. And the Thessalonians, the Christians in this city, they they were a lot like us. They had a lot of questions about the afterlife. And Paul answers some of those questions in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 13. That verse says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So right away, Paul divides all people into two categories, two distinct groups. The first group would be those who are uninformed about what's after this life. Those are the ones who don't have real hope. But there's a second group, and that group is made up of the ones who know the future, and they're ready for the future, and they have an unshakable hope that gets them through even the toughest days in this life. Now, that leads directly to one of the main points I want to make today, and it's something we all need to understand. Your beliefs about death and the afterlife will have a profound impact on how you live. Your your convictions about the future will determine your actions and your attitudes in the present. And we're going to spend two weeks seeing how Paul develops this idea And today, we're looking at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and and we'll see what Christians believe. And then next week, we'll go to chapter 5 to learn how we should live in light of those beliefs. My prayer is, by the end of this, all of us will be well-informed and full of hope in the face of any trial, including death. So now, let's go back to the verse we just read. In this verse... Uh, Paul is writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, and he's pointing out one of those areas where Christians should be different than the rest of the world. And last Sunday, Dylan walked us through the first part of chapter 4, and in that passage, Paul told the Thessalonians how to live a holy life, even though they were surrounded by an unholy culture. And Paul told them not to get involved with sexual immorality of any kind. He also reminded them to show genuine love to each other. So Paul is telling these people, hey, you belong to Jesus now. And because of that, you've got to stand out. You have to be different. And that theme continues here in verse 13, but he's moving on to this topic of death and the afterlife and and grieving. And in those days, there were all kinds of beliefs floating around about the afterlife, just like we see today. And we could go back and and learn about those first century beliefs, the Stoics and the Epicureans and on and on, but I want to make sure we apply this passage to our time and our setting. But I want to look at some of the, the different beliefs that surround us today. And I'm not trying to come up with a comprehensive list here. I just want to mention two common beliefs about death and the afterlife that you may encounter in this world, in our time. The first one goes something like this. You may hear someone say, death, it's just a part of life. Death is natural. And when you're gone, that's it. You're gone. 
that when you close your eyes in death, you lose all consciousness, you lose all awareness, and you lose all sense of self. And when you think about it, this is the message of the Lion King. It's the circle of life. You remember that, right? The circle of life says that every living thing dies, but the good news is you become fertilizer. (laughs) Decomposition happens. You become food for the plants, and then those plants become food for animals, which become food for other animals until even they die and become fertilizer too. This is the framework for people who put all their faith in science, in a materialistic universe. Those who say, this is all there is. This is it. Life and death, it's just a circular pattern going going round and round and round. And maybe one day the whole cycle will end and, and life itself will just disappear. Now, there is a serious problem with this line of thinking. If the circle of life is all there is, then absolutely nothing matters. No one matters. You and I have no real value. Life is utter meaninglessness. I brought a bag of fertilizer with me this morning. If you go down to Walmart, this bag would run you about $10. And if you adopt this particular philosophy, the circle of life, a materialistic universe, Your personal value doesn't go much higher than what's in this bag. Now, fortunately, this bag is only about 40 pounds, so you can multiply that $10 several times until you get to your weight. So, that means you may be worth 50 bucks or more. It's none of my business, but how about that? In all seriousness, um, isn't there something deep inside of us that says, No, that's not it. That's not the the summary of our total value. There's more to all of us than just flesh and bone. We know that, right? Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. He said, if you are really a product of a materialistic universe, how is it that you don't feel at home here? Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Of course, fish don't complain about being wet. They don't notice it. They don't think about being wet because that's where they're meant to be. C.S. Lewis said, just notice how all of us are always surprised by the passage of time. You see little Johnny after several years and you say, I can't believe it. You're so grown up. You're married now. Time really does fly. Now, why do we say that? Why are we always pointing out the passage of time? Isn't that like a fish pointing out the wetness of water? Well, there's a very logical explanation. The explanation is that this is not our natural habitat. This is not where we're meant to be. We're meant for a life that's beyond this world. It's like what we read in the book of Ecclesiastes. God has set eternity in the human heart. So we long for eternity. We long for God. We long to matter because God gave us intrinsic value when he created all of us in his image. So now we've covered one common belief about death and the afterlife, but I want to look at just one more. And if I had to guess, I'd say this second belief is the more common of the two. Because for most people, that materialistic explanation, it just doesn't cut it. It doesn't seem 
possible that uh, people are just totally gone when they die. Even in this age of science and logic and information, we can't shake the idea that there's more to us than meets the eye. So, here's another common belief. A lot of people have this opinion that most all of us will live forever in some form, in some happy state. Of course, that's extremely vague, and there are a lot of different versions of this, but people like this belief because it just feels right. I could give you tons of examples of my encounters with this line of thinking, but one recent one was on YouTube. About a week ago, my wife and I watched one of James Corden's carpool karaoke videos, and this particular episode was with Paul McCartney. Now, you may know how carpool karaoke works, but just in case, here's a summary. James Corden just rides around with some musician, and together they, they, they sing that particular musician's hits, and they, they talk and do some comedy bits. And depending on the musician, these videos can be really good or really bad. And i got to say, this Paul McCartney episode was amazing. And this guy is a legend. He's written some phenomenal songs. But at the same time, whenever we watch something, whenever we listen to something, we should always look for the messages that are being communicated. I've said for a long time now, there is a sermon in every movie. There's a sermon in every song, in every news broadcast. All media and all entertainment is created by people who have a particular worldview And their beliefs always show up in their work. It's just natural, isn't it? So here's my caution for all of us. Don't just mindlessly watch something or listen to something without showing discernment. Evaluate every message in the light of Scripture because so much of what we hear is directly opposed to God's Word we're not paying attention, those messages can, can make it into our minds and into our hearts and sort of take root. Anyway, back to the point. Uh, James Corden and Paul McCartney, they're, they're driving around Liverpool in this video, and at one point they sing, Let It Be. And James gets emotional. After the song, uh, he tells Paul that his late grandfather and his father used to play that song for him. And then he says, If my granddad was here right now, he'd get an absolute kick out of this. And here's the important part. After a little pause, Paul looks at James and says, he is. Now, if you look at the comments under the video, uh, several people talk about what a beautiful moment that was. Isn't it great that Paul was so encouraging and so hopeful in that moment? And I get that. It it sounds like a nice thing to say, but the real question is, is it true? Is it true? Does Paul McCartney or, or any of us have any compelling reason to believe that James Corden's grandfather was in the car enjoying that moment? As far as I can tell, the only reason to believe that is because it just feels like something that should be true. But you know what we call that? We call that wishful thinking. It's just imagining something positive and and wanting it to be a reality. But let's be clear about something. Wishful thinking is not the same as true hope. 
That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I don't want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul says, I want you to have real hope. I want you to have a rock-solid confidence in the reality that God will carry you to the best possible future and that nothing can get in the way of that future, not even death itself. So we've waited long enough. We've, we've talked about what others believe. Let's see what God's Word has to say. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, Paul writes, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. According to the Lord's Word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, there's a ton of great stuff in these verses, but here's the big idea. Here's what Paul said about the future. The Christian belief, based on Scripture, is that everyone in Christ can claim the hope of a literal resurrection and an eternity with God. And that future will be inaugurated by an event like nothing this world has ever seen the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, this passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the fullest explanation of the second coming that we have in the New Testament. At the same time, though, there's a lot of information that's just missing. So why does Paul mention some details, but he leaves a lot of our questions unanswered? Well, we need to go back and see why Paul wrote this passage. Uh, If you were here for the beginning of this series, you may remember that Paul and his companions went to the city of Thessalonica and they started a brand new church there. But then persecution broke out. Paul had to leave town and he continued his missionary work down in the southern part of Greece. He didn't forget about those Thessalonians though and at one point Paul sent his companion Timothy back up north to check on them, see how they were getting along. And Timothy found out that the Thessalonian church was not only surviving, they were thriving. Timothy found Paul down in the city of Corinth, and and he gave him this good report. It was really exciting. And that's when Paul wrote this letter. And part of his reason for writing was just to encourage these new believers and cheer them on. But he also addressed some of the questions and the issues that had come up in his absence. Apparently, one question came up. Because someone in the church had died, possibly several people. And the Thessalonians had been expecting the return of Jesus, but now they were concerned. What was going to happen to those believers who died before the second coming? Would they be at some kind of disadvantage? Would they miss out on some of the great things that were yet to come? Would they miss out on everything? And that may seem like, you know, kind of a strange thing to wonder about from our perspective, but you have to remember uh, they were very new to this Christian faith. A lot of them came from a Greek background, and, and you just don't know what you don't know. 
But that's why Paul keeps talking about those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He's answering their question. Now, sleep was a metaphor that referred to death, and Paul is making a strong point here. He's saying that followers of Christ who die before his return, they won't be missing out on anything. They'll they'll be fully present and fully aware of this historic event. And in the process of answering that specific question, Paul gives us this great description of the second coming. And just to review, here's what he said. There will be a specific day. We don't know when that day is, but there will be a day when Jesus returns to earth just as he promised to do. And by the way, his coming won't be a secret. Did you notice that? Uh, It won't be some kind of body snatchers type event where a bunch of people just vanish with no explanation. It says Jesus will appear with a loud shout, a loud trumpet blast. Everyone's going to know about this. And then there will be a great reunion. Those who died in Christ will be resurrected, and they'll meet Jesus in the air. And then those who are still alive in Christ will be caught up as well. So both living Christians and Christians who previously died will be together with Jesus. And that state of togetherness, it begins on that day, but it continues on for eternity. And don't miss this part. This reunion is specific to those who are in Christ. It's for those who have experienced a life-changing relationship with Jesus. This future applies to everyone who is saved by grace through faith in Jesus. It's for those whose sins have been paid for by the work of Jesus on the cross. It's for those who are righteous in God's eyes, not because of any good works of their own, but because of God's mercy, because of what Jesus has done. Not everyone has this hope of an eternity with God. It's available to everyone. God wants it for everyone. But it's only a reality for those who have responded to the gospel, for those who are in Christ. And that's the unique hope of Christianity. And and when you really think through what Paul wrote here, it brings up a lot of questions. For example, what happens to Christians right after they die? Uh, Where are they in between the day of their death and the day of the second coming? Well, Paul doesn't get specific here, does he? Um, But I'll go ahead and give you a brief answer based on what we know from other passages. First, there is a way in which those who died in Christ are already with Christ. In a couple of Paul's other letters, he writes about his longing to leave this life so that he can be with Jesus. For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So from this passage and several others, it seems like those who die in Christ aren't just in some unconscious state. But then we also have to look at the truth that we just saw here in 1 Thessalonians 4. We saw that there is a way in which those who died in Christ will experience a full resurrection when Jesus returns. Paul also describes this over in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, For the trumpet will sound, we heard about that, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, those who are still alive, will be changed. 
For the perishable, this, this old body, must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And that's pretty exciting because that means we won't be just some kind of floating ghosts. Uh, the, the, the old body uh, will be gone. Everyone in Christ will get a new resurrection body. And, and this new body will be imperishable and immortal. And everything that's wrong about your current body will be perfect in the 2.0 version. And the older I get, the better that sounds. But there, there's another natural question that comes from Paul's account here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He describes this great reunion in the air, but then what happens next? Where, where do we go from there? Well, depending on which scholar you read or which preacher you listen to, uh, there's all kinds of opinions. Some would say that everyone goes on up to heaven from there. Others say that uh, every follower of Christ will accompany Jesus back to earth where he will establish his rule in this world. Now, someday soon, we're going to study all of this in more detail. We actually have it on the preaching calendar for 2019. But you know what? In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul shows little interest in the geography of the second coming. Paul is interested in the person of the second coming. That's why he says what he does in, in the last part of verse 17, where he says, So we will be with the Lord forever. I think Paul would say, if we're with Jesus, who cares about anything else? Because what we long for is not so much a certain place or a certain activity. What we long for is Jesus himself, his presence, his love. So there are many other questions we could discuss here, but I really want to address just one more. I want to speak to the person who's having a hard time believing all of this. You might say, you know, now, Doug, you were pretty tough on Paul McCartney, but how is this Christian belief any more than wishful thinking? And let me just be honest and say, I hear you on that. Because if you've never heard the passage that we've read here today, I could understand if, if you said it sort of sounds like a Christian version of science fiction. So an honest question deserves an honest answer. And I'll tell you this. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul himself said in verse 14, wasn't it? He said, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so, because of that, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It's that simple. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then yes, our hope is just wishful thinking too. But the opposite is also true. Confidence in the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus leads to confidence in the future event of resurrection for those in Christ. So the big question is, why believe that Jesus really rose from the dead? And that's a separate sermon, of course. It's actually a, a whole book. But I will give you just a few reasons to believe. First, if you've come to the conclusion that God exists in some form, and the vast majority of people do believe that God exists, if you're there, then you're already most of the way to believing in a resurrection. There's a professor named Peter Slezak who's an atheist. And this atheist says, 
for a God who is able to create the entire universe, the resurrection is child's play. And that's just logical, right? If God created life one time, it's no stretch to think he could do it again. So that's not a problem. But what about the resurrection of Jesus specifically? Why believe it? Well, what's helped me is to look at some of the irrefutable facts that surround this event. And these are facts that are widely agreed upon, agreed upon, not just among Christians. Fact number one, Jesus was a real person who lived on this earth and then died. That fact is supported both inside and outside the Bible. Second, Jesus was buried in a tomb. There were eyewitnesses to his burial. He was really dead. Next, on the third day, the tomb was empty. And even the enemies of Jesus had to contend with this fact. That's why they came up with that story, that his body was stolen. But that story didn't work because of the other facts. Number four, many people in many places testified to an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time. And he says, you know, most of them are still alive. You can go talk to them yourself. And if that weren't enough, you still have to deal with these last two facts. Number five, many lives were completely transformed after encountering the risen Christ. You can read about disciples like Peter who changed overnight. They went from fearful to fearless. And how did that happen? Well, it makes total sense if your leader just proved that he has power over death itself. And the last irrefutable fact is this. Many witnesses to the resurrection were willing to die before they denied that truth. Now, if the whole thing was a hoax, I can't see them being willing to suffer extreme persecution or, or die for, for, for some made-up story. Now, if you put all of those facts together, you have some compelling reasons to believe that God did something that we know He has the power to do. See, faith is not a blind leap. It's based on evidence. And because the resurrection of Jesus was a real historical event, we can have confidence about this future that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4. We can walk through this life with a foundational hope. Whatever happens here, we know that everyone in Christ is headed for the best possible future. And this hope is, is not only about the future, though. It's very much for the present. This hope will change how we live here and now. And like I said earlier, uh, we're going to talk more next week about how we should live between now and the second coming. But today I'll just keep it simple. How did Paul end this chapter? He said, therefore, because of everything I've said up to this point, because of this hope and this promise of the return of Christ and a great reunion with those who have gone before us, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So that's how I want to close today. I want us to encourage one another. When death hits close to home for you and for me, What's our response? Will we grieve in the face of death? Of course we will. Of course we'll grieve. We're going to experience profound sadness and even anger. And, and you know, those emotions are completely appropriate for a follower of Christ because death is an enemy 
that entered this world because of sin. And when death takes someone we care about, we have this sense that it just seems wrong. But that's because it is wrong. It's a monstrosity. It's not what God wants for us. But death is not the end of the story. God sent Jesus to save us from death, from eternal death, to give us the hope of a resurrection. Not wishful thinking, but a proven hope. So yes, when someone dies in Christ, there is grief. grief. But underneath all of that, there is hope. There's no need to be fearful in the face of death. In fact, the most appropriate response may be anticipation, joyful anticipation. Not long ago, I heard about an old preacher named Donald Barnhouse, and tragically, Donald's wife passed away while their children were still young. And on the day of his wife's funeral, Donald was in the car driving with his kids, and a large truck passed them in the next lane. And the shadow of that truck passed right over their car. And right then, Donald had an idea of how he could comfort his children as they tried to make sense of the loss of their mother. And he said to them, did you see the shadow of that truck that just passed over us? Would you rather be hit by the truck or by the shadow? And the youngest child said, oh, that's easy, the the shadow, of course. And Donald said, 2,000 years ago, the truck of death hit Jesus so that only its shadow would pass over us. He said, that's what happened to your mom. She was only hit by the shadow of death. That's the hope we're talking about today. That's the hope in 1 Thessalonians 4. Death has no power over us. Jesus has won the victory over death, and he has offered that same victory to us. So encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, there is so much that is beyond us, things that we have no control over, things that are just unknown, and and death is near the top of that list. It makes sense that so many people struggle to have hope in the face of death, but I thank you so much that you have given us a hope, that you've given us a promise, and you've proven that it's not just wishful thinking because Jesus has risen from the dead. So Lord, for all of us who have already found this hope in Christ, help us to live like it. And for those who don't have that hope yet, Lord, help us to to share this good news that it's available, that you want this. You, You want everyone to go to heaven more than anyone else. You've made it possible. So Lord, help us as a church to live in the light of eternity, to live in the light of this hope, to share your love with others so that this reunion can include as many people as possible. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.